I'll invite you now to turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 to 8. And uh, we're just going to focus on those verses this afternoon. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 18.1 says, And the Lord appeared to him, that's speaking of Abraham, of course, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the, he- under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender, And good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Uh, These words introduce us to a new subunit, a section uh, in Genesis that runs through to the end of chapter 19. And this section centers around kind of the main story that we would be familiar with is the story of God's overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, But verses 1 to 8 here, they do more than simply introduce this new unit. They reveal to us an aspect of Abraham's piety. Namely, this shows us his hospitality, that he had a hospitable character. Uh, if, this, all this, if all this was meant to do was simply introduce us to the broader and kind of bigger story here of Sodom and Gomorrah, if that's all it was meant to do, you could have just had verse 1 where it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. That's where he was living. As three, three men came to visit him. And then you could really basically skip down to verse 9 where they then ask, Where is Sarah, your wife? And then just carry on with the story. But instead... That's not what we have. Instead, we have a number of details here that I think do matter, that are important for us, that are here for our instruction. We have Abraham running out to meet these three men. We have him prevailing upon them to stay with him for a time. We have aspects of his service to these men, including we are even told the menu. It doesn't even just say they ate. We're told precisely what it was and even how much that they served these men. These aren't just wasted words. Again, as we think about the entirety of Scripture, all of it is inspired by God, every word of it. There are certainly certain stories and certain truths that take kind of front front row, if you will. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the gospel as of first importance. There are certain things that are more important, certainly, in Scripture, but all of it still inspired by God and here for our instruction. 
And these words here as well, they are not just wasted words. They are revealing to us, again, an aspect of Abraham's godliness, that he was the type of man who would be so welcoming to his guests, as we read here. And so we see and we learn here about the godly virtue of hospitality. It is commonly held that this account that we have just read here is likely one of the events, and perhaps even the primary event, that stands behind the words that we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, where we read, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I don't think that is just talking about just broadly speaking, people in general have once in a while done this. Uh, It's talking about the fact that this has actually occurred in Scripture. And there's really only a few places in the Bible that we could look to to show that men have entertained angels unaware of it. Uh, Certainly we see it with Samson's father. If you remember uh, Judges chapter 13, Manoah is Samson's father. Uh, Very clearly that's what occurs there. I won't read that now, but you can look there if you wish. It might be the case of Gideon from Judges chapter 6. And then really outside of that, we really have here in Genesis 18 with Abraham and then Lot again in chapter 19, which we'll get to in time. Hospitality is something that Christians are most assuredly called by God to practice. We are, in fact, explicitly commanded to do this in a few places in the New Testament. So I already mentioned Hebrews 13, 2, where we're not to neglect uh, showing hospitality to strangers. But likewise, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, here's what it says there. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So, He's addressing Christians, he's addressing the church, the one another's, how we are to act with one another, and among the things that we are to do is to show hospitality to one another. It's an expression of love for one another. Romans 12, 13, similarly says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The book of 3 John, which we read earlier, is a book in which hospitality and the concept runs throughout it. The word is not used, but the concept certainly is. Uh, The people that John was writing to there were commended for their reception of these Christian missionaries, though he says they were strangers to you in verse 5. Furthermore, hospitality is also an implication of a number of verses, including the commands to love our neighbors and even to love our enemies. Uh, You think of the actions of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells as an example of what it is to love our neighbors. We certainly see a hospitable spirit uh, in the Good Samaritan. And then finally, with respect to the New Testament, hospitality is listed as one of the qualifications of an elder in both 1 Timothy and Titus. So there is no question then That this is a virtue that Christians are to possess and to put into practice. And so as you think about living your life unto the Lord, as you think about being called to living holy, living righteously, I wonder how often hospitality comes to mind as being an expression of that. 
There are many things that perhaps we, we, we do think of immediately, purity of mind and perhaps uh, making sure we are present at church with the Lord's people, kindness and various other fruits of the Spirit. But hospitality is one of the things that the Lord calls us to. And so it is obviously important then that we would learn, that we would discover something about what this is and about what this involves. And so we're going to examine this matter of hospitality as we look at these eight verses and the life of Abraham. We're going to look at three lessons about hospitality from these verses. And so as as we've been going through Genesis, a lot of what I've been trying to do as we go through it is try to see the big picture of the the, the plan of redemption that we see being laid out and being enacted in the early book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, but we are also, so sometimes we are dealing with big concept, big picture stuff, um, how the different covenants of Scripture relate and, and all of that. Uh, but we also see a lot in here that is very, and, and I hope that when we do that, you understand that there is practical benefit to understanding those things and building up of our faith in understanding the word of God and God's plan of redemption. But there are also other times where we focus in on what we could call maybe more practical scriptures as well, more, a very practical lesson about hospitality, for example, where we look at the life of, in this case, Abraham, a man of faith, And we see what is commendable in him that is here for our instruction to likewise uh, walk in. So we're looking at this matter of hospitality here and three lessons about it. So number one, first lesson. Hospitality is not something to be limited to our closest friends. Hospitality is not something to be limited to our closest friends. It is obviously good to be welcoming to those who are closest to us, to our closest friends, to those who are maybe most like us even, those for whom it is easiest to welcome. But we see something more than that in the Bible when we speak about hospitality. And in this account that we've just read, I would submit to you that the visitors that Abraham meets and then welcomes into his tent are in fact complete strangers to him initially. So let's look uh, at verse 1 here. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now we're told right away in verse 1 that the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham. And so we know whatever is about to come, this is going to be the Lord appearing to this man. But I don't think... Abraham would have realized all that's going on initially, not right away. And certainly, if Hebrews 13.2 is talking about this situation, then certainly we conclude that Abraham was unaware of who these guests were. Uh, We will see as we go on, these are angelic visitors, though they have the form of man. They have the form of just human appearance. And so I think that Abraham is unaware of this, does fit, Uh, with the text that we have right in front of us. So for verse 2, let's continue on, and I'll hopefully explain that. Verse 2 says, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So he sees these guys, and they they have the appearance of being just normal men. That's what he sees. Uh, Let's continue. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight... Do not pass by your servant. 
Now, if you're reading from an English Standard Version, the ESV, as I am, you might notice that beside the words, O Lord, in verse 3, there's a footnote there. And then it tells you that that could be translated as, My Lord. And I would submit to you that's how this should be translated here, as other, many other English Bibles do. The word that is used here in verse 3 is the Hebrew word, Adonai, which means, My, my Master, or Lord. It is not the same word that we have in verse 1. So you notice in verse 1, and the Lord appeared to him. You notice that's all capitals there. There's smaller caps, but they're all caps. And then in verse 3, it says, O Lord, but in the English, they're lowercase O-R-D. This is where English translations and their insistence on replacing the, the name of God, Yahweh, with the word Lord, with these capital O-R-D, uh, I, I think this is sometimes unhelpful to us, and it can be confusing to us. Uh, Adonai, which is the word used in verse 3, Adonai can be used of God, of course. He is the ultimate Lord. He is the ultimate master of the universe. But this is also a term that men used of other men to speak of earthly masters and earthly lords. This is not a very common way we talk. We take, typically take offense at thinking someone might be a lord or a master, Uh, But this is used commonly in the scriptures and and has been commonly used throughout history. It is a respectful title. It honors the person. It shows they have a certain, even in some cases, authority over us. And so I would submit that what Abraham is doing here is he is honoring these men by referring to to one of them, at least, as Lord. He's not realizing right away that the Lord Almighty is appearing to him in the form of these men. But he just sees what he understands to be men in need of help, and he goes out to them and respectfully addresses these men. He's honoring them, and he's putting himself at their service. It doesn't mean that he's aware that these are angels. In fact, if he did know that they were angels right away, then what follows would be a little bit strange. Uh, If you were ever to meet what you know to be an angel, would your first thought be, I need to, I should try to get him some food. That that would be a bit of an odd response. And it's not really the normal response when men come into contact with angels in scriptures, when they know it's an angel. In the case of Samson's dad, I mentioned earlier, Samson in chapter, uh, Judges chapter 13, Samson's dad there, he's, he's interacting with this, Person, He thinks it's just a man, but it is actually, the text says, the angel of the Lord. And he offers to feed the angel of the Lord. And, and then it tells us in brackets, it explains why he's doing this. And it says, at least in the English, it's in brackets. It says, for Manoah, Samson's father, did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So we think, why, why is he offering to feed the angel of the Lord? It seems odd. And it explains it to us. Well, he didn't know it was the angel of the Lord, so that explains his actions, why he would try to feed this individual. So I think it's the same thing happening here. Abraham sees three men coming to him. He sees three men on a journey. And so he runs out to them. He's, he's imploring them, stop in here, let me serve you, and then be on your way. And so the example we have of hospitality here then is indeed of welcoming and caring for strangers. In the New Testament, the main Greek word for hospitality is a combination of two Greek words. 
The Greek word for one of the Greek words for love and the other for stranger. Right? Showing that showing love, showing compassion for strangers. That's what the word hospitality means. And even in 3 John, as we read, uh, the church was commended for receiving the brothers that were sent their way, strangers though they are. They didn't know these believers. They didn't know these men, but they welcomed them into their home. They provided for them and then sent them on their way. The examples and commands for hospitality in the New Testament, they center around church life. They focus primarily on showing hospitality to fellow Christians, to one another. That's what it's talking about when we read that we are to, not, to, to show hospitality to one another. We're to show it to Christian brothers and sisters, to one another within our own church, within our own context, and also as others might come our way to receive them whether these people would be personally known to us or not. But I don't think this means that we should therefore, since the main focus is on showing hospitality to other believers in the Lord, that we should therefore be inhospitable to the unbelieving world entirely. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the New Testament does prioritize. It's sort of like a man with his family. He is to take care of his own wife and children first and foremost. That's where his first duty lies. He shouldn't be giving all that he has away while his family has nothing and is in great need. That's similar. We take care of our family, and and, and the Christian church, we are family, and so we have a certain responsibility to one another first. But the Bible doesn't say we just limit it and bar the door from anyone else who might need our help, but it gives us this guideline that as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. And I think we can take that into mind and keep that in mind as we think about this matter of being hospitable. Certainly we do recall our Lord's command to love even our enemies, which means that there will be times and opportunities to show hospitality to them, perhaps when they themselves find themselves in need. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the Good Samaritan, we're familiar with that story, and it doesn't use the word hospitality, but I think we can see certainly that spirit about him, that he shows mercy and compassion on one who would generally be an enemy of his, a Jewish man. And takes him and binds his wounds and takes him to this innkeeper to take care of this man and to pay his way and to return and check on him. Now, when we consider hospitality to strangers and particularly enemies, there's obviously need for wisdom here. There's there are probably a million different scenarios we could think of. And I'm not suggesting that the Christian teaching is you are never able to say no to somebody or to keep somebody out. That you just always have to have an open door policy and, and never shut it or keep somebody out. I'm not suggesting that. Wisdom is going to be needed most certainly. Rather, the point that I'm trying to stress now is that biblical hospitality is more than simply having friends over to hang out. Uh, Anybody can have their friends over to hang out. But hospitality, biblically speaking, 
goes beyond that as well. So, second thing. Biblical hospitality involves humble service. It involves humble service. Hospitality, that the sort that honors God, is something that necessitates, requires humility on our part. There are no doubt a number of self-serving reasons why a person might take in a guest or show some form of hospitality. We might do that in order to look good. Right? Let word get around at this great event that we put on. We could do it as an act of self-righteousness, as if we think this is the kind of thing that merits something before God, that is going to contribute to my right standing before God because I'm generous enough. We could do it in order to receive a return invitation. Perhaps we invite certain people. Jesus even warned about throwing banquets for this very purpose, that we, we have somebody over in order that maybe they'll have us over later, and they are, you know, they're the kind of people that could advance our cause. It's a very worldly way of thinking. We could show hospitality to people in order to put them in our debt. Now they owe us. They owe us something in return now. But hospitality that would honor the Lord involves a humility by, whereby we would genuinely seek to put others' interests ahead of our own. That it would be an expression of this humility and attitude. Abraham's humility is seen throughout this passage. I would remind you at this point in Abraham's life, he is a great and important man. He has distinguished himself in battle. He's had kings come out to greet him. He has a very large group of people that would be considered part of his household at this point, including many warriors. He had 300 warriors that went with him. Uh, when he went and rescued Lot, if you recall, he had a number of servants as well that were in his household. A lot of people, that 300 fighting men, that's just the men capable of going to battle. Never mind those that are younger or those that are too old for it. All the wives and children as well. There's a great group of people in, considered part of his household. He's an important man at the head of that. And yet here he doesn't send men out to just do all of his bidding. He himself is involved in this service from start to finish. And so notice again the humility in what we just read. Verse 2, when he saw them, the three men, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed his, himself to the earth and said, that's Lord, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So he runs out to them. He bows down to them. He honors one of them, at least with the title of Lord. He calls himself their servant and prevails upon them to stay with him before they would carry on their way, wherever it is that they are going. I would say that's a very remarkable expression of humility for a man such as Abraham. If we are to advance in this godly practice and virtue of hospitality, it will certainly involve a continual war against our selfishness. It involves lifting our eyes, even as Abraham did here, to be aware of others and to be aware of the needs of others. Looking to see how we might serve somebody beyond our own selves. Whatever Abraham had planned here on this day, we're not told, but that was about to change. 
He's about to throw that all off. Even if we're told it's the heat of the day, that's not an insignificant detail. It's a time to rest. It's a time not to be working. It's hot. Even if all he had planned was to rest at this point, to go from I'm about to rest to I need to go hurry and prepare a feast for people is a rather significant interruption and change in the plan. Our natural disposition is to continually look inwardly throughout the day, all day, to have things be about me, what I want, what pleases me, what is to my preference. And then even when we do act in love, our flesh is right there prepared to still make this about me, about us, about ourselves. Here's Philippians chapter 2. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul in Philippians 2 there goes on to lay out the great humility that Christ has shown in coming to die for sinners. Biblical hospitality does require humility on our part. And it is not just an attitude of humility that we see here, but it's a humble service that we find in Abraham. He springs into action here. He doesn't just, he's not just sitting there aware that he is a lowly man with an attitude of humility. He then acts out of that humility. He acts in accordance with it. And so this is a reminder, hospitality is indeed an activity. It is an act of service. It is more than simply having a general feeling of goodwill toward other people, where you would wish good things upon others. Just as love is more than a nice feeling towards somebody, so too hospitality is more than wishing well for someone. Notice all that occurs here. Verse 4, Abraham says, Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham springs into action here and he oversees this whole thing, all that's prepared here. He enlists the help of Sarah to make cakes with fine flour. And then he runs off from there to get this calf that is tender and good. A good calf, not the sickly one that he can easily dispose of, but a good one. And he hands it to a young man, a servant, to prepare it quickly. And then when it was ready, he took it along with curds and milk he brings all of this food and he gives it to these guests who then eat it while Abraham, we're told, stood by. But he doesn't elbow in. He just stands off to the side. Again, he's 
waiting on their table. This is further humility. He's not above this, though he is the great Abraham who has received amazing promises from God Almighty, who's the head of of a significant tribe and family. But he himself serves these visitors. As we think about hospitality this afternoon, I, I don't intend to draw up legalistic requirements about this for how often you need to have someone in your home or, or anything of that sort. But it is an inescapable reality that this is an activity and an action that Christians are called to give ourselves to. Some of us need to grasp that. This is a command for New Testament believers. If we were to refuse this or to despise this, it would be to disobey God. And so we need to have our minds renewed here by God's good word. It is an activity that we are called to, a humble service. Thirdly, biblical hospitality calls for generosity. We see Abraham's generosity in in what we have read. He's generous with his time. He's generous with his labor. And he's generous with his resources. Again, he, he rises during the heat of the day and he literally runs around to make this all happen. The word ran and run is repeated to prepare this. He tells Sarah to quickly take three seas of fine flour. And you might have a footnote there telling you that's ultimately that much uh, flour would be almost 22 liters. That's a lot. That's a lot of flour. He initially invites these men to stay for a morsel of bread in verse 5. But this amount of flour is going to yield a lot of bread, a lot of cakes for them. And notice also it's fine flour. He doesn't just give them the stuff with the worms in it, the leftover flour that he's got, the worst he's got, but he gives the best of what he's got. Further, Abraham has at least one of his servants, this young man, and probably more, involved in this. So he's taking them from whatever their usual tasks and duties were in in this household And he's now using them to make this a reality. So there's generosity in that as well. He pulls them from other labor to take care, help take care of these visitors. We know that true godliness is not simply a matter of external behavior, but that God looks past even the externals to the heart of man. God is not simply asking for grudging service and for a grudging sort of generosity from his people. Uh, we see that that happens sometimes. I think we, we probably have experienced that very thing in our own selves, a grudging sort of obedience or whatever. Uh, we see Jesus tell us that God is looking to the heart of man. He even condemns the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. They were very good at external showy displays of prayer and caring about others and righteousness, but inwardly they were... Dead man's bones, he says. I think as we consider Abraham and his humility and his hospitality here, we should understand that underneath this activity, Abraham, this external activity, is a man who possesses a generous spirit. He's acting as he does, genuinely so. 
that he has some concept that this is fitting for him and right for him, especially considering all that God himself has blessed Abraham with. The practice of hospitality will involve cultivating a generous spirit within. There's a number of ways that we can do that. Certainly by dwelling on all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And recognizing all that we have is ultimately from his hand. That he is the one who has given all good things that we possess. And for Christians, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are his servants. And all that he chooses to dispense to us, we are told that we are merely stewards of those good gifts he gives us. Stewards to use in service to our God. And Christian hospitality is one way. It's not the only thing, but it's one way that we seek to reflect the love and generosity that our God has shown to us, to others. Christians are those who confess that the infinite and eternal God Almighty who has created heaven and earth has showed us compassion and care when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our hope is that God has reached down to us, given us life. He has adopted us as sons who have a great inheritance being kept for us and awaiting us, the inheritance of the new and the new creation of eternal life. We believe that God's eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come to earth as man. He has paid for our sins. He has earned this glorious inheritance for us. And all of this then is ours as a gift of God's grace that we receive this empty-handed by faith, by just believing God's promise to do these things. This is, if you will, the ultimate act of hospitality, that God would gather up dead sinners, his enemies, pay the penalty for our sins, provide us with our righteous covering, and make us his children and give us an unbelievably kind and eternal inheritance. So when we seek to care then for others around us and for those in the church and to serve others, when we seek to be generous toward one another, we are seeking to reflect then something of how our God has cared for us. Again, all of this is contrary to man's natural state, to our flesh, our sinfulness. Our natural fleshly reaction is to cling tightly to that which we have been able to attain. It's mine. We need to guard it, protect it, keep people away, refuse to share it. But Christians are those whose ultimate treasure is in heaven. And we, are, we hold loosely then to all that we possess here and now. Realizing that moth and rust destroy it. And we are moreover given these things by God and his providence. And they are ours to steward in the best way we can to the honor and glory of God. 
And so it is right for us to overflow with generous hearts in light of all that God has done for us, in light of all that he will yet do for us. We can think of his temporal blessings he has given to us and all that we have, for which we should be thankful. I'm not not trying to make you feel guilty. If he has poured out many temporal blessings upon you, you rejoice in those things. When we think of all the spiritual blessings, if we are trusting in Christ that we possess, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, he's sanctifying us, he's going to keep us. Judgment is no longer going to fall upon us for our sins, for Christ has satisfied God's wrath for our sins. All of these blessings that are ours, it is right for us then to overflow in generosity toward one another's and to, to one another and to others as well. Likewise, when it comes to our time, we know it is good, it is right for us to make plans, to schedule things, but it is also essential, as James reminds us, that those plans will come to pass if the Lord wills. That's how we should plan. If the Lord wills, we will do this and that in the future. And that's not just a phrase that we're just to tag on to say, if the Lord wills but to understand that ultimately it is God's will that is done and God rules over all in his providence. It could be that we have our plans of what we're going to do today or tomorrow, but God in his providence might interrupt those plans and it could be with an opportunity to help somebody else, to show hospitality toward them. So we're to work toward generosity with our time as well as with our resources. Now again, when it comes to exactly how we all put this into practice, I'm not drawing up here legalistic guidelines for everybody, nor do I think it's going to look the exact same for every individual and for every home. If Abraham, for example, was poor, this scene might have looked a little bit different. We know that he had been blessed with much by God. But if he was poor, his generosity may not have included quite as impressive of a feast. He may not have had a young man that he could help have help him prepare the goat. But I don't think we should conclude that Abraham wouldn't have been hospitable at all in some sense even if he was poor, even if he wasn't as wealthy as he was. Our God calls us to faithfulness and to steward that which we do possess. Sometimes we can think, well, if I was as wealthy as that, sure, I'd be super generous. But if we assume that, then we don't understand the deceitfulness of riches and the warnings that we do find in Scripture about it. The eyes of man are never satisfied. There is always more. Indeed, if you have been given much, the Bible does tell you, tell us that much is expected. Now listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's not shaming, he's not guilting anybody in that. God's given it to you to enjoy. It's a great thing. 
But he warns about setting one's heart on those things. Continuing on, addressing the wealthy, he says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Generous, ready to share, storing up treasure. And also just add that those with less are not thereby exempt from possessing a generous and hospitable spirit. We see in Scripture that sacrificial giving is honored as well by our Lord. So it may look different depending on the situation, depending on what we have. Not everyone's got a spare room in their house to put guests in and so on. It's going to look different in different situations. We would also do well to note that not everyone has the same freedom when it comes to their time. Not everyone possesses the same giftedness, nor the same family situation. So my point is that there are many things that can affect our practice of this. And so we want to be careful of any just kind of one-size-fits-all approach to this. And so I would encourage all of us in this matter to deal with God honestly in our hearts. To pray that we would possess a generous and hospitable heart toward others, toward one another and to other people generally to pray for opportunities to show hospitality and to strive against that flesh that remains that would oppose this very thing. And as we bring this to a close, I would also remind you, of course, that we do not believe in justification by hospitality. And this is a very good thing Because if that were the case, we would all be damned. We would all be without hope. We all fall short of being perfectly generous toward others. That generosity in our hearts. We all fall short of possessing the perfect attitude even when we do show hospitality. If if you're in tune with the, the... how deceptive our hearts are. You, you've, you've experienced, even when doing the right thing, there's some part of you that even then is enjoying the praise you might get from it or hoping that maybe others might notice this thing. This is how deceitful the human heart is. This is why we need to be justified by God's grace alone through faith alone. This is why we need the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Place your faith and hope in Christ alone for your right standing before God. Rest here. Rest in that. Trust that he has done enough that you'll stand before God righteous. And then receive the teaching that showing hospitality is indeed one of the good things that God calls us to as we live out our lives in gratitude to our gracious God. We are not justified by hospitality, but it is indeed good. 
And may God be pleased to bring our minds and lives into greater conformity with his word on this point. Looking to the needs of others, stewarding our resources generously to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We praise you together that you have looked on us, that though we were enemies of yours, Father, you sent your Son to come and take up our cause and secure our salvation. Father, we could never repay you for the kindness that you have shown to us and continue to show to us and will show us into eternity. Father, I pray that that would grip our hearts and our minds. And that you would cause this to overflow in a wealth of generosity to others. Father, we know that there is sin that clings Our flesh remains and we wrestle with selfishness in all kinds of different ways. And so we pray that you would pour out sanctification in great measure, Father, that we might be generous people. Father, help us to know how to do this uh, wisely, Lord. We pray that you would Make us those who are welcoming. Father, we thank you for your great, again, welcoming to us and for bringing us into your family of faith. Father, we, I pray that as we seek to love one another in this way and have opportunities to show this kind of kindness to others, I pray that people would see a difference. Father, we we fall short in this area as we do in every area. But I pray that we would bear much fruit here and that it would give us opportunities to even bring the good news of the gospel to others, to point people to the great kindness that you have shown to us Father, we know that all of our efforts could never repay the good that you have done to us. Help us to not think of it that way, as if we're paying you back or putting you in our debt when we do these things. Help us to just do these things as your servants and at the end of the day to know that we have only done what you have asked of us and even that imperfectly so. We are continual debtors to your grace and we praise you that We have your grace in Christ Jesus. So, Father, help us as we go from here. Deal with us according to your mercy and your kindness. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.